This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I think we all know that agriculture around the world is at a critical moment right now. We find ourselves between simultaneous crises in which the long-term effects of the pandemic continue to shine a light on the instability of our global food system, all while the war in Ukraine is resulting in a shortage of grain and synthetic fertilizers. Now, the full effects of these scenarios are still a long way away from being felt, but I can tell you that the dramatic rise in the cost of these commodities is already throwing many farm operations into a panic. Many growers are now faced with excruciating choices to make on whether they try and force every square meter of their land to produce at a maximum in order to justify the steep prices of inputs, all while the weather continues to throw curveballs and threaten the viability of their crops, or take a risk in overhauling their land management models and make a dramatic shift to a low or zero fertilizer farming method that their ecosystem may or may not be prepared for. At the center of all of these are annual crop producers mostly the growers of wheat, corn, soy, and other cereal and legume crops that make up the majority of the cultivated land around the world. For decades now, they've been lobbied and incentivized to increase their fertilizer and chemical inputs to produce ever more quantities on their land by both the agrochemical suppliers and the government subsidy systems that have promoted a get-big-or-get-out model of payouts. This has resulted, of course, in an unprecedented biodiversity and topsoil loss in a race for higher yields that have eroded both the land and the viability of small to medium-sized farms around the world. Now, as dire as these scenarios sound, there are options and processes that have been tested and proven in many different contexts in order to wean your cropping operation off of these inputs and to step off the treadmill of extractive production by revitalizing the life in the soil and reducing or eliminating the chemical inputs and the machinery-intensive management of these staple crops. I'm also keenly aware from my conversations with growers around Europe and in other places that this is a very vast and controversial topic. But fortunately, to get us started, I reached out to Timothy Parton to break down the process that he went through to wean the farms that he manages off of chemical inputs and the reality of what that transition process has looked like. Now, Tim is a farm manager from South Staffordshire in the UK, farming 300 hectares of arable land who has pioneered no-till management in his area by focusing on promoting biology as much as possible to replace chemical inputs. He attests to using bacteria to fix nitrogen, release phosphorus, and fight off disease. He has massively reduced the use of glyphosate where possible, using rolling crimping to terminate cover crops instead. And he hasn't used insecticides for the past five years, all while working to improve soil carbon content through rotation and cover cropping, And he hasn't used insecticides for the last five years, all while working to improve soil carbon content through rotation and cover cropping, and also using companion cropping where possible. These efforts have earned him accolades, including being named Arable Innovator of the Year by British Farming Awards, and receiving the Farm Innovator of the Year Award from Farmers Weekly. This episode is a bit different from the others that will be coming out in this series, in that it comes from a live skill exchange call that I hosted from late last year. And the last half of the recording goes into the Q&A portion in which the farmers in our network get to ask their questions. In this episode, Tim and I discuss a wide range of essential aspects around the topic of regenerative transitions for arable crop operations. We start by looking into Tim's own transition and the mindset shift that made the concepts and practices click. From there, we go into the options available for weaning off of chemical inputs and how to make decisions that are right for the unique context of your land and your farm business. Tim also gives practical advice about the expectations that the grower should have during the transition timeline, as well as how to accelerate it. Now, like I mentioned in the beginning, this is a very broad and controversial topic, and I plan to include many different perspectives over time with this climate farming series. So if you have any comments and recommendations of people that you'd like to hear from, you can reach out to me directly at oliver at climatefarmers.org. I'm really looking forward to developing this series with the help of listeners like you. And also, before we jump into this interview, don't forget that we're now helping growers all around Europe to be matched with consultants, coaches, and mentors to offer dedicated assistance in your transition to regenerative management. We have plans for any budget, as well as a list of prominent regenerative agriculture experts from around the world like Tim Parton, Harriet Mella, Mark Shepard, Ray Archuleta, 
Adamir Caligari, Ben Taylor Davies, and many more. So just click on the link on the show notes for this episode on the Regenerative Skills website to accelerate your transition to regenerative management right away. And with that said, I will hand things over now to Timothy Parton. Now, Tim, I know that this transition didn't happen overnight. So can you start by telling us how you began to manage your farm regeneratively in the beginning? And what was the mindset shift that really made these concepts click for you? Um, yeah, evening, everybody. I think probably I've, I've always had an interest in soil. Uh, I could never understand, even as a young boy, why, why we abused our soil so much. So I, my journey started really with wanting to improve my soil. I could see our soils were going backwards. Uh, and without soil, we can't farm anything. Soil gives us everything. It gives us air, it gives us clean water, and it gives us food. And it's the most valuable resource a farmer can have. And I think that was the, the real moment I, I wanted to improve the soil. And that was always my goal, rather than, than financial gain. I, I knew if I got the soil right, the financial gains would come. So I, I first probably started to make the transition, moving from, from a, a min-till system into a strip-till system, which at the time I thought was fantastic. And the strip-till system really gave my brain chance to start and accept moving less soil. And as I went down and got more into biology, I realized the strip till was still moving too much soil for me. And that's where I moved to no-till. And I really started to get into biology then and brewing biology up. And, and biology's got all the answers, in my opinion. And we've spent all the last century just ignoring biology. And I firmly believe this century is the century we will be working with biology and working with nature and getting the best out of nature for, for ourselves and, and the, the whole planet, basically. And through this key insight, you know, it's, it's one thing to come to a realization that the biology is the key and that focusing on soil health is really what makes everything work. But how is that different from what, the way that you were used to managing things? And what helped you in the transition towards focusing on biological health? Um, I think I'll probably answer the second part of that question first. I first sort of when I realised that we could fix nitrogen from the air, I read Charles Walters' book. Um, God, I can't remember the title of it, but once I realised that you know the air is seventy-eight percent N, it's free. And, and I think it was back in two thousand and twelve, the first year I, I started to, to play about with biology, and I wasn't brewing then; I was just putting the microbes on. And I reduced nitrogen applications by forty kilos per hectare to pay for the biology. And everywhere I used it, I got an extra ton to the hectare in yield, which to me was like, wow, what are we going to do now? Um, and the following year, I didn't get the yield increase. I got the same yield because biology is a fickle thing and it's understanding it. And our climate is so temperamental that it doesn't always, things don't always fit. And that's, that's just life as a farmer anyway, in my mind, you know. I think that's part of the challenge. That's what we all enjoy is that challenge of trying to fight the weather all the while. Um, and coming out on top more often than not. Um, so you just repeat the first bit of that question, Oliver. Sorry, I've forgotten already. Yeah, no problem. So as you understand that the key is in the health of the biology and the soil, it's one thing to understand that, and it's another to actually apply it on your own land, right? So yeah, what's so once, once applying it? From that, from that moment of, of realizing I could fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, that was just, that was the light bulb moment for me with biology because then I started reading more and more books on biology. I, I wanted to know more. I don't think I'll ever know everything. I'm the type of guy that once I start to get interested, I want to know everything I can about it. And I think this one will beat me because I, I don't think I'll ever get there because we're constantly evolving. So once, once I'd made that light bulb moment, I then adapted the drill so as I could brew biology and place it right next to the seed in that seed trench. So as I was I'm planting the seed, I'm dropping the biology right next to the seed so we can start to get that symbiosis going on between the biology and really start to get that rhizosphere working again because in my mind, we've spent the last 70 years killing everything. And so this was just trying to introduce and bring things back and, and have that harmony within the soil of everything working again. Okay, so Tim, so as you started to implement these changes, you also mentioned that 
the second year you didn't see the increases or the improvements that you had seen the first year and that biology is a bit of a fickle thing. I know that with my own experience in consultations and perhaps with yours as well, managing expectations in the transition period is really important. What would you say to growers who are facing perhaps a pretty drastic transition from very machine and chemical intensive management towards favoring the biology and the health of the soil? What should they expect and what kind of timelines are realistic to really start to see changes in your management? Um, I think the one thing I've learned over the years is you can't rush somebody on this journey. If I try and rush somebody down the journey, they'll take two steps forward and then they'll take five steps back. So the most important thing is to go at your own pace and be comfortable with what you're doing and understand what you're doing. And that's where education and talking, there's so many of us doing it now that we're always happy to chat and talking to farmers who have gone down the path. It's a lot easier than when I was doing it, where there wasn't the people I could ask. I had to try and work it out for myself. And it's not easy. Change isn't easy. It's no good anybody thinking it's just going to be an easy journey. It is a, a bit of a roller coaster ride because you're stepping out from the crowd, you're doing things different, and it challenges all of your beliefs because it's almost like starting to farm all over again from, from scratch and sort of getting rid of what you've learned and having to start again. Um, for me, I would say within three, on the third year, you'll really start to see worm numbers increase. You'll start to see the coming alive again. But the most important thing is to buy a spade and start to understand and see what level your soil's at. And, and don't try and run before you can walk. You know, it's without air in the soil, you can't grow anything. You know, it's as simple as that. So I can't sit here and say, you'll be there in three years because I don't know where you're starting from. And that, that's the, the really important one is to buy a spade and get to feel, get to know your soil. It's, it's what it's all about. You know, that connection between farmer and soil is the most important thing. And things can change, you know, with the, we've had two really wet winters here and that's pushed soil back because it's, it's we just had so much rain. It's been a field capacity and, it, you know, it, it hasn't brought the soil on quite as fast as I'd like. But on the other boot from there, because my soil is in such good condition, infiltration rates, even though we had a couple of inches of rain, it would still do an inch every six minutes. So it's still infiltrating, which is just showing the health of that soil. So there are lots of benefits that you can see, and it's observing, observing what you're seeing, rather than just looking at it every day and not getting in there and seeing what's happening. It's um, And once you start to see the improvements, I think that's when you really get the enthusiasm and it just drives you on even faster. For sure. I guess along that same line, as I've heard you talk about in other interviews, simply reducing chemical inputs, whether that's fertilizers, pesticides, or herbicides, can actually have devastating results for farmers if the land that has been long addicted to these chemicals is not supported in rebuilding the health that's been lost. How did you use ecological health in your soil to prevent failures when the chemicals stopped or were reduced? It, it, it's been a long path and I sort of, I went at my own pace. So, you know, you, you've, as you've just said there, we've made the soil basically a drug addict and it, we've given it everything it needs. It hasn't been producing phosphorus. It hasn't been releasing potassium. And we've been throwing all this nitrogen on, which has just made all these weak cell plants. So then disease is going to come in, pests are going to come in because we've made a very sort of low calorie plant. It's nutrient level is so low it's an unhealthy plant and nature wants to take it out and it's at the end of the day we've all got to stop in business it's no good being the best environmental champion if you're not making any money it's, it's simple as that without being making money we're, we're out of business and we're not farming anymore so it's it's a slowly slowly approach you know there's no point going cold turkey because you're going to have big problems it's got to be a reduction probably 10 15 percent of nitrogen each year and see what's happening don't just rush in there and, and do cold turkey because you will fall flat on your face. And as I said, we've all got to stop in business. That's the top priority of this. And it's going at a pace and seeing what's happening. It's no good trying to go from A to Z without putting all the work in, in between. And it's no good thinking it's an easy road because you have to work hard at it to get there. But I'm a big believer the more you put into life, the more you get out of life. And this is a prime example because the more you start to understand what you're trying to achieve and what you're doing, the easier the transition's going to be. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. The more you put into life, the more you'll get out of it. And 
building upon that, uh, as you're reducing some of the inputs that are not building overall health, but are kind of putting a Band-Aid over the problem, you do need to compensate with some other things that support it in the transition. Have you found that there are ecological options available for alternative treatments to conventional insect and disease management? Yeah, I mean, basically, with the insect management, insects are only coming in to take the trash out. It's as simple as that. If you've got a pest problem, it's because you've got an unhealthy plant, which is normally because you've done a cultivation. There's been lots of mineralization of nitrogen. That plant's sucking that nitrogen in. And then you've got an imbalance and you haven't got the nutrition there to convert those simple sugars into more complex sugars. And that just attracts those monosaccharides and monofructose. The, the insects are going to be in there and are in a feeding frenzy. But if you can put the, the extra nutrition down there for that plant to be able to move those sugars into more poly complex sugars, as in polysaccharides, polyfructose, the insects aren't going to bother with it and be doing that. We'll have a higher bricks reading. So you, you can look as a farmer and think, yeah, we're in a good, safe position here. Because once you start to get that high bricks reading, we, we're just safe then. And so insects are only ever there to take the trash out. They're never there. They wouldn't be there normally. It's just we've created a problem. Most of the problems we have is what we've done as farmers. It's, but we didn't know any better. It's no good beating ourselves up. It's the most important thing is to make the change and start to move forward again. Yeah, that's very important. There's definitely, at least from, from our side, no idea of pointing fingers or making bad guys out of different situations. All of us have come to this point collectively, and we collectively need to support each other to get back on the right track. Um, and so we've been speaking kind of generally right now about bringing biology and health back into the ecosystem, into the soil. But every situation is different. Not everybody is starting from the same baseline of soil health. Uh, some peoples are destroyed, others are, are actually pretty decent, but there's also fluctuations in climate and, and regulatory systems. Every context is unique. And so what would you give as advice for starting to analyze your starting position and build a strategy that is unique to your situation to get back on the right track? What are some of those first steps? The most important step to me is to get a spade. And, and get out there and walk your fields and, and really get to know it. Then I'd start to have some biological tests done and just see what sort of level your soil's at. Uh, what If you've got any, if, if it's alive or if it's a totally dead soil, because you'll start to see that um, there's loads of devices out there now that we can actually test and see what fungi ratio to bacteria we've got. So there's lots of things you can do to start to get a grade. I mean, an infiltration test is a very simple way of seeing how healthy your soil is. If you can just make a ring, knock it into the soil and measure up and just see how long it takes to infiltrate an inch of water and then do it the following year and the following year, you'll start to see how your soil's improving or it should be. And that is a very, very simple way of just measuring that soil health. For sure. Now, as you were starting to figure all of this out, where did you find support and assistance in perhaps your experiments or trying new things or kind of accelerating the learning curve without having to reinvent the wheel yourself. What was key to that for you? Um, reading books has always been key to me. I, I've probably got, I don't know, 120 books on the subject. So I read an awful lot. Um, I knew where I wanted to go. And I think once you know where you want to go, the right book or the right person always tends to appear at the right time and you just lead down the way. Um, I work closely with Mike Harrington and Nick Woodjack, who um, work at a company called Edifos, who are very like-minded with me, and we will throw ideas to each other and, and come up with solutions, and, and we move forward that way. And when you start to join different organisations, you'll always find like-minded people that are always normally, most region farmers are more than happy to share, because the more we all share and work together, the faster we're going to move forward. It's, um, and that's what I always loved about Regen when I started to get into it. Everybody wants to help each other. and It's a lovely community. And that's what it should be because to say the more we all share our trials that we're doing, we can just move it forward a lot. You know, it's such an exciting time at the moment. There's so much happening. And the more everybody can do different trials and, and just move it forward, the better in my mind. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely something that we have found with our own farming network all around Europe. 
that access to like-minded communities, people who are supportive of this transition process, generous with their knowledge, and generally supportive of other people who are on this transitional path have been really key for a lot of people getting past the inevitable challenges and setbacks that come when you're working with a complex biological system. I mean, no matter, even if you take all of the right steps, there are so many variables that are out of your hands that can throw everything off track. And there's an, there's an amount of humility, but also a real need for support and, um, and community in this transition. Now, I wanna to talk to you about your experience working with Edifice. Um, these are, this is a, how would you call them? A consulting agency with quite a bit of experience and some very innovative ideas about how to get on the right track towards regenerative management. How has their support and their advice been key in helping you get past some of the sticking points in a transition? Um, it's, it's always nice. I have some quite wacky ideas. And it's only certain people I can run those ideas past. And so that's probably the best is when I come up with a wacky idea that they, they, they don't laugh at me or, or think I'm wacky. They just, yeah, okay. And we'll, we'll throw that around and talk it over. And you know, I could quite easily do all my own agronomy and do it all myself. But I feel I'm in too much of a bubble on farm. Um, and you don't, sometimes you need somebody else who's looking into your bubble to see what's happening rather than you being in your bubble on your own and you're making all the decisions. And I think to have somebody come in and we can talk things over, sometimes I'll, I'll stick to what I wanted to do. Sometimes I might change a little bit because they've pointed something out that I didn't quite see. And that's where I think it's really important to, to have somebody that you can talk to and throw the ideas around. And the other beauty, you know, when somebody's going around lots of farms, they can see what's happening in a big area, you know, even all across our country. And so they'll give you more information, feedback, where I'm just on farm and in that bubble. I don't, I'm not open to all that of what's going on within the country. And I think just having somebody to talk things over sometimes is, is invaluable because we spend so much time on our own as farmers. I think, you know, mental health is a big thing. And to be able to talk to somebody sometimes, you know, when you've got a problem that you can't find a solution, it's invaluable in my mind. Oh, absolutely. And I've really found the same thing. I mean, I myself have been working as a consultant and a designer for projects all around the world for a number of years now. And I'm just on the cusp of starting a project myself. And I am going back to my network of experts and consultants, even though I, I have an idea of what they're going to say, having that outside perspective and just like you said, someone looking over your shoulder who perhaps sees a bigger picture and can remove themselves sometimes from that tunnel vision that's very easily created when you're in it every day, when you know, you've know you got the stress of having to get work done and make management decisions. Just, just that little bit of distance can be so key. And it's one of the reasons why consulting is built into the pioneer program that we're offering over this next year is because taken on an individual basis, uh, consulting fees can often be somewhat prohibitive, but by gaining access to the big network of professionals and experienced practitioners around Europe, we have seen that our farmers have been able to make leaps and bounds past what they were capable of uh, working by themselves. You know, sometimes having a professional assistance can, can make a really big difference in the learning curve, especially if this is something that you're new to. Now, uh, we're getting towards the end of the interview portion here. And before I open it up to the listeners here, one last question. What have you observed that are some of the biggest hurdles for other conventional growers to get past before they can find success in regenerative farming? What are some of the sticking points that you see a lot of people getting hung up on? The biggest one, as I said, when I was talking to John, it's always what's between your two ears. It's the biggest problem because it's just unlearning a lot of things that you believe and relearning. So it's being open and opening the door and, and not being tunnel visioned and, and looking for the, the, what can be achieved but without using the chemicals. I mean, I don't use pre-emergence herbicides anymore. I don't use insecticides and I don't use fungicides. And that first year time when you, when you, when you stop using a fungicide and if you go to a local talk or something and all the farmers will be telling you how much they've put on and how bad the situation is, or you'll pick up 
a farming magazine and I can guarantee every spring in our farming magazines it will say how bad disease is going to be and you've got to put this on and you've got to put that on so I don't bother reading them because it's not going to do me any good it's, it's hard enough to step out in the crowd as it is so it's it's believing in what you're doing and knowing it's right and I think that's a real positive of regen farming is that feel good factor that you know what you're doing is right rather than poisoning everything poisoning the whole planet that we're in it's it's just that feel good feeling that, that you know what we're doing is right and we're on the right path and we're just going to make everything better we're going to have more nutritious food we're going to have a healthier planet and we're going to be healthier farmers it's as simple as that yeah absolutely now in the vein of being transparent and honest about everything, though you have weaned your farm off of all of those chemicals that you've talked about, you're not 100% chemical free. Is that correct? There are still... No, I'm still having to use some herbicides. Um, I, I, I'm, st I'm still still use a bit of some glyphosate and I'll still use some mercilfia on your ears. Um, I want to get away from it. And some years I've managed to grow wheat and I haven't used any herbicides. It's it's a little bit back to the weather and, and where I am when, when the day of drilling and everything else since our maritime climate doesn't always lend itself to, to do just what I want it to do. So sure. it's always my goal is, is to sort of like be a, an organic no-till farmer, whether I'll ever get there, I don't know. Well, so let's unpack that a little bit because I think it's really important to communicate this to people that there's a certain amount of idealism that is not practical. And like you mentioned very importantly earlier, if it doesn't work out for your business, you can do all of the ecological practices that you want, but it's not going to be sustainable into the future. And there is a certain amount of pragmatism here that I really think that is important to communicate because there are people who think that, oh, well, I, you know, for whatever reason, I had to use glyphosate this year, or it was just necessary to save this crop and I had to use this chemical. And does that, that means I'm not regenerative. It means I can't count myself in, in this club. Can you give the, a little bit more of a realistic perspective on this and the journey that you've gone through to, to get where you are now? It's, it's no good sort of burying your head in the sand, just as you, as you just pointed out there, Oliver. It's, it's no good thinking, oh, I'm a regen farmer now, so I'm not going to use an insecticide or I'm not going to use a fungicide. At the end of the day, we've still got to stop in, in business. So I would use this insecticide if my crop was being devastated and I couldn't do anything about it nutritionally to balance it out. I, I would have to go in. I'm not going to sit there and, and watch my crop die. You know, touch wood on, it'll never happen because I'd, I'd feel really annoyed with myself if I was in that situation with the knowledge I've got now. But the same with the fungicide, sometimes with our maritime climate, it, it, it might be necessary that I need to nip in there with a cheap fungicide, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. It would be another learning curve. I'd learn from the situation of what went wrong and I'd take it as a positive rather than a disadvantage. I've always tried to be positive. I can't see the point of being unhappy about anything because it doesn't, it just makes you feel even worse if you look at all the negatives that it's gone wrong and oh, I'm a bad farmer and I've made a mess of it. There's no point looking at that. It's looking at the positives of what went wrong in that situation and learning from it so as you can take it forward, not to make that mistake again. It's as simple as that. It's just always looking for the positives rather than the negatives. Otherwise, you just keep churning it around in your head and you just go down and down and down. And, you, you know, you think, oh, I'm not going to do it anymore. And it's, it's stopping positive and taking it forward because there's always a learn, something to learn from anything that's gone wrong. There's always a positive that I've learned something from it. And I'll always take that with me. Yeah, that's very valuable. And this is really uh, demonstrative of the longer term mindset that is necessary to manage anything regeneratively, right? You're not dealing, I mean, of course, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to deal with the things that come up, uh, the challenges and the, <laughs> the problems that you have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But this is a really good example of having a longer-term mindset of the health and the resiliency that you're trying to build into your landscape and into your business. How important is it to, to really keep that long-term vision in mind when making day-to-day -day decisions? It's vital. Um, and I, I always use the analogy, it's like swimming across a river the first few years and you think, oh, I'm going to swim across the river and you get halfway across and you're starting to get a bit tired. It's starting to get hard work and you start to look back at that bank where you started from and you start thinking, shall I go back? And Don't look back. Just remember what you, what you, where you're aiming to be and where we need to be. If we don't get carbon back in the soil, 
and improve our organic matters. We're not going to have a farming system left. And it's remembering the key things of why you've started out on this journey. And by getting a healthy soil, you know, I don't need the insecticides. I don't need the fungicides. But it's remembering where you want to go and why you're trying to get there. And it will challenge you. It always does. Any change that you do in your life will quite often challenge you. It will challenge your beliefs. It will challenge your thinking. And, it'll, you know, it'll put pressure on you. And, you know, I've had loads of sleepless nights in the early days because there was nobody to turn to. I had to come up with the problem solve the problem myself and get through it but it's a fantastic and exciting journey and I say I, I do like a challenge but um, it's just for me to be always remember where you're trying to be and where you want to be in the next five years time and knowing that we can't keep killing our soil you know we use fungicides insecticides and herbicides the one thing they've all got in common to me is suicide we cannot keep killing the vital resource that we've got as a farmer hmm. very well said and look, Tim, uh, I have taken up too much of this interview with my own questions. I can see in the chat that there are a lot of great and very specific questions for you there. And before I open it up to, to the listeners to ask their own questions, I would remind you that a lot of the questions that I'm seeing are very specific to the way that Tim is managing his land. And it may not apply to your context, even if he tells you exactly how he applies certain rates of nitrogen over certain hectares of his field or what kind of uh, seed treatments that he uses. Remember that the patterns and the understanding here are what's important. And though the specific techniques may be working for Tim, they may not work for you. So it's not necessarily transferable advice. But with that said, uh, if you would like to answer a question, I have a quick question. Yes, I'm Joshua. Um, hey, uh, are you finding any markets or better prices for your goods while you're in like the transition to regenerative? Are, are you are the customers, the clients out there um, appreciating that? And because I, it's the and not or a lot of the times when you're farming. So as you're pulling away from all the sides, uh, are you getting better prices in the in the interim or? Not at the moment, no. It's something I'm working on. There's a group of us working together called the Green Farm Collective, and we're trying to do just that because we believe that there is a more of a better market and we should be getting paid a higher price for the food we're producing now because, one, we're net zero, so you know, we're, not, we're carbon positive with all our food. And it'll be, well, I'd like to think it'll be more nutritional food um, and it obviously hasn't got all the poisons on it, so... I'd, it's something I'm aiming towards, Joshua. That's all I can say. I ask that because I have somebody I want to connect you with who's actually helping farmers in the U.S. get better prices while they're in transition. And she, she's really, she really drives home the point that it's and, not or, as we're transitioning. Not to leave you all behind just because you're not 100% organic yet. So thank you. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, and by all means, continue to put things like this, any uh, links or connections or even your own contact information if you'd like to share it in the chat here while we're speaking. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And it's great to see you on this call. I know it's been a while since you and I connected, but I'm really glad you're here. All right, who else would like to ask a question? Yeah, hello, my name is uh, René. And my question is what uh, crops you are um, planting and uh, what your uh, crop rotation? Um, I grow quite a wide um, rotation, uh, as wide as I can. I'm 50-50 sort of winter, spring cropping. Winter cropping, I would be uh, winter milling wheat um, and winter oilseed rape, winter canola. And then spring cropping, I would be spring beans, spring lupins, spring oats, um, spring barley. And then I've also got grass in the rotation because I make haylage for the horses and that would be on a three-year, four-year lay rotated all around the farm. And before every spring crop, there would always be a cover crop uh, grown. The cover crop could be either one to, to improve fertility or it could be just to improve general soil health. So I'll have as much variation in that cover crop as I can because the more variation I've got above ground, the more variation I'll have below ground, as in feeding different microbes within the soil. Did that answer your question, Rene? Yeah, uh, answer my question. Uh, uh, second little question. You have uh, animals um, in, in your farm, on your farm? Um, we used to be a mixed farm. 
Uh, I do have sheep come in to graze some of the cover crops in the in the autumn, so I've got sheep here now. Um, I haven't got our own livestock, no. I used to think livestock was very essential, um, but I think what I've proved with the cover crops, that the exudates that the cover crops are putting down is what's making our organic matter. And I'm pretty sure I can do it without animals, and I used to think it was impossible where now I'm not so sure about that I think I'm proving I can do it just by growing that varied cover crop because I'm creating that compost within the soil just by the variation of cover crops but I still think animals play a big part don't get me wrong but I haven't got the animals at my disposal so I've had to do it the opposite way yes thank you all right go ahead who's next who would like to ask their question okay <laughs> I'll ask Mike uh, did do you only add um nitrogen fixing bacteria what else did you add and you you added it to to the seed as a seed treatment or did you spray it in the seed row um i always spray it in the seed row uh, i brew up nitrogen fixing bacteria i also brew up phosphorus releasing bacteria and i'll also brew up trichoderma so i'll always dressings obviously but I'll always have seed tested to make sure it's good enough to use without a seed dressing because if I'd got some fusarium there that was oil or, or, or ergot or whatever I don't want to be growing that obviously but if there was fusarium there the trichoderma would eat the fusarium so I wouldn't have a problem so I, I that, that's why the trichoderma is there it's a very aggressive fungi and if there is a bit of fusarium on the seed for instance then it would take care of it I also make compost, so I'll, I'll have a compost extract, so I'll brew up a bit of compost, and I'm playing around with that the last couple of years, just to get as much variation of biology back into the soil as I can. So I will extract compost and put that down as well. Um, I use um, a peristaltic pump on my drill. The peristaltic pump is very gentle on biology, because it's got the squeezing action rather than the, the diaphragm hitting all the while but it also allows me to have a very dirty liquid so I can get that organic matter down there next to the seed. So I, when I had a, a diaphragm pump, I was always filtering out all the good stuff that I wanted to put down by the seed. But by fitting peristaltic pumps, I can now just, I can pump anything. It can be as dirty as you like. It doesn't need a filter in it. It'll just pump away all day. It's just fantastic. Thank you. Oh, hi, Tim. This is Miriam from Australia. Hi, Miriam. Um, I... I'm working with a group of farmers here and you were just talking about um, applying liquid um, in furrow at, at planting. How important would you say that is for, for our growers? We say it's, it's one of the most important things that you can do to be able to apply that biology. How important would you say it is? I think it's vitally important. That's, what, that's why I spent the money and uh, adapted my drill to be able to do it. Um, as I said, we, you know, we've spent so long killing everything within the soil. It's not, you know, it might come back naturally, but I'd sooner, we're in business at the end of the day and I want to move forward, I get impatient. So I'd sooner get those microbes back there uh, and get things moving again. And I, I think it's a vital part of my old farming strategy of what I do. Um, I'll also put diatomaceous earth down at drilling. Diatomaceous earth, micronized diatomaceous earth, but just allow that plant to get the silicon back in. So I'm putting that defense system there straight away. Um, so the cell walls are stronger so they can fight off that pest attack right from day one. Um, and it just gives me that ability to do that. But that, going back to biology, I, I think it's vitally important. If I was starting all over again, it would be, still be the first thing I'd do is allow me to do that. So that was actually along the lines of what I was going to ask too. Of all of the different things that you have trialed and have gathered data and results on, what has been the best return of investment for either things that you've imported from outside or things that you've brewed and come up with on farm itself? The best investment would be applying the, the, the liquid system to have the peristaltic pumps in my mind, because the bacteria, I'm getting, I'm getting in that rhizosphere straight away, so I'm getting that interaction. You can spray on the crop, but it's just nowhere near as good, and I tried that. And, it's just you just not getting that seed to, to micro contact straight away. And so that would be the best thing I've done. Um, 
And I suppose that the best return then is just bringing the nitrogen down because I, 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 this last year I've, I've grown a crop of wheat with 56 kilos of them. It went on to yield anywhere between eight and nine tonnes of the hectare. And that was just foliar applied. I did about 20 kilos of, of soil applied, but the rest was all foliar applied. Foliar N is just so much more efficient than, than soil applied N. And, you know, I'm using it all, but I can balance the plant while I'm doing that. And that's all part, it's all part of jigsaw puzzles to get me to where I want to be, that I'm not using a fungicide and I'm not creating a problem to need to use a fungicide, but I still want the yields. It's as simple as that. It's I never I hate being called a low input farmer because I, I prefer it, it's intelligent farming what we're doing. We're using the best of science and getting the plant to its best yield capacity, but with minimum investment. And the problem if you take somebody you're a low input farmer, they'll always have this vision in their heads of a farm that's not being very farm very well. And it's just an excuse to get away with it. But this is so far away from that in my mind that it doesn't deserve to be under that banner. It deserves to be a lot higher than that because this to me is the future of, of the whole planet. It's it's what we are, every farmer needs to be doing. And that's why I'd never mind sharing and talking to people because it's far bigger than any of us. And if we don't start and make a stand to make changes, it's not going to move forward fast enough in my mind. Mm. Yeah, well said. Go ahead, I'll hand it over to the audience again. Who wants to ask a question? Um, yeah, I'll happily take over. Um, Tim, one thing I've been wondering, if you have been able over your years of consulting um, to be kind of able to develop more or less of a template or like an approach how you would um, go about the transition process of a farm. Or is it uh, in a way that you have to say every farm is so completely different that it's impossible to follow a clear um, yeah, plan in that? You've, you've got to be able to farm your own farm. Every farm is different and it's, it's seeing where you're at. And, you know, if you've got a very anaerobic type soil, it's going to take different management than somebody that's got a nice aerobic soil that's functioning, but it's just biologically dead. It's, you know, it's so different between the two. And that's why I can't do a template for one size fits all because it's just not possible because every farm is different. And until you know where you're starting at, you can't just jump from A to Z. It's, you've got to earn the right to get to Z and, and you've got to put the work in. Um, and I think that's where some people, some people just aren't prepared to do it. It's as simple as that. And there's nothing I can do to help those. It's, you know, a true farmer wants to improve his soil and leave it in a better condition for the next generation, in my mind. And that's what farming is all about. It's all the while trying to leave it in a better state than what we found it. And uh, I, I can't do a template because I say, I don't know where you're starting from. So it's, it's just knowing where you are and knowing what sort of, as I always keep saying, buy that spade and have a look and smell it, feel it. And, and you know, the visual things that we've got as a human being to assess soil. It's probably some of the best in my mind because you can smell whether it's anaerobic, you can smell whether it's in good art, you can see the colour of it, you can see the, the the texture of it, you can just feel where you are, and that's that's always the starting point, and that's where talk to people or you know educate yourself with books. There's that much out there on YouTube and everything else that if you're just prepared to put the effort in, you can you can do an awful lot of work yourself. But uh, you, you know it's it's all there. It's just how far. You want to go on your own. So while I agree with what he said there and all of the nuances that need to be addressed, uh, farming your own farm, uh, I have actually found certain processes to be very helpful for people who are new at this. And much like you talked about, getting an assessment of the state of health or degradation of the farm as it currently is, is an incredibly powerful starting point, right? You don't know what to fix until you know what's broken or what is working. And then from there, getting very clear about what it is you hope to achieve in the long term and doing an assessment of the resources you currently have and the ones that you can acquire, as well as how you're interacting with the community that is involved in the process of management, both the people who are working with or beneath you in your organization, as well as the ones who may have decision-making power over the management system of the land is really important. And getting everybody who is working on these on the same page so that you're rowing in this in synchronicity, right? So to speak, is 
is really essential in the beginning of starting to manage the complexity of an ecosystem, right? Because we're not talking about linear systems here. We're not talking about one plus one equals two. There are emergent properties from complexity like this. And so by doing an initial assessment, getting clear about your goals and your vision for the future and getting on the same page with the people that you are working with and that have decision-making power is often where I see people really set themselves up for success. And I'm sure you have done this as well, Timothy. And even though it may not be part of a protocol or a template that you might rec uh, recommend to someone, wouldn't you agree that these are essential kind of initial considerations before you go in and start making changes to the management itself? Definitely. You've got to know what you're dealing with. It's as simple as that. And the more information you can get, the better in my mind. It's um, You can start to work with what you've got then and, and take it forward. But those initial assessments are just invaluable. Mm -hmm. So we're starting to get close to the end of this call. There's time for maybe two or three more questions. So if anybody would like to jump in, go ahead. Don't be shy. Hi, Tim. It's Miriam again. Um, I was just going to ask, uh, with regard to nitrogen, we, we found that we have much, much better results um, if we change the form of nitrogen that our farmers are using uh, from something like urea to, to an ammonium-based one. Are you finding the same thing or because you're using a lot foliar, do you find it doesn't hurt to use that nitrate-based or urea-based um, nitrogen? I use, I still use ammonium sulfate as the soil applied. I don't use urea. And then the foliar applied, I use an amide end, which starts off as urea, but it, it's more of an amino acid. It's made that transition. So I don't find it quite as damaging um, to, to, the, to the biology. Um, and obviously it doesn't need as much energy from the plant because it's already been converted in that to that amino acid. It's just one, yes. one step behind the amino acid. So I, I have great success with that and I can balance it because it's, um, it's flex fertilizer, which comes from Denmark. And so from that, I can add any, any, because I do a lot of sap testing if I'm lacking in something when I'm doing that application, I can balance the plant up. Um, so I, I do try and steer clear of urea. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Hi, Tim. Um, I was just wondering if you've done any trials or use any silicon products on farm and how you got on with them. I use um, diatomaceous earth, uh, which obviously gets converted into monosilicic acid. And then I also use potassium silicate. So between the two, the, the diatomaceous earth goes down at drilling and then the potassium silicate is what I use as a foliar. And I've got on really well with that. Um, you have some books that you open your mind, especially, or what? What the books are you prefer, and and you, yeah. Ooh, that's a, a difficult one. It depends what stage of the journey you're on, really. I think David Montgomery's a really good book, Dirt, um, the Growing Revolution, as a starting point, because he'll just talk through how all past societies, the only reason they failed within the world is because they didn't look after their soil. The Roman army couldn't feed itself in the end because it didn't look after their soil. And I think that's a real good starting point for anybody to realise we're on that exact same path that they were on because it goes over 100 years. No one generation can remember what it used to be like and so you just accept it. And I think that, that to me, is another light bulb moment that you realise... We're only here for a short time and that soil's here longer and we don't see the degradation we've done to the soil because it's over such a long period of time. But to me, we're heading on that slope if we don't start an act now and regenerate our soil. It's, um, we've just followed the same pattern. And people will often say to me, oh, well, we've got to stop in business. And we have, I totally agree. But we can't stop in business if we're not sustainable as in repairing the damage we've done to our soil. It's it's like any machine, if you don't maintain it, it breaks in the end. And that's where we are with the soil. It's, it's doing a balance and not going too fast. So as we stop profitable, we're making more money. But at the same time, we're repairing the damage. And that, to me, is, is where you know, we should all be as farmers. And it doesn't always go to plan. But we've got to have that vision in mind of where we're going. And so, so David Montgomery is a real good starting point as a chap called Jeff Lowenfels. He's very good on biology. That's an old book, but it's a good one to start reading about biology. 
Um, Matt Parra's um, Regeneration of Soil or something like that is another good book just to get you going. Uh, there's, there's loads of good books out there and so sometimes it's worth rereading them twice because as you go further down the journey you get more out of it when you read it the second time. Thank you. Welcome. Tim, it's Miriam again. Um, I was just checking, you were talking about the different composts that you're starting to work with now. Um, uh, do you, have you tried to use the Johnson Sioux beam approach or um, how, how do you approach the composting? What, what sorts of ways do you do that? I've, I've tried the Johnson Sioux. Um, I haven't had as much success as, as I expected from the Johnson Sioux. So I've gone back to how I always made compost. So I, I just make it the probably two foot high on a, on a pallet. So it's aerated all the way around and I can just control it more. What I found with the Johnson Sioux, it all collapsed in on the vents and then some bits of it were very wet, some bits were very dry and I couldn't control the environment as I wanted to. So I've gone back to a smaller amount like I've always done and I, I, I'm having some good successes with that. And uh, Sometimes I'll add some different fungi spores in there to, to make it a more fungi compost or what, you know, whatever I'm going for but, and I'll try different ingredients. But it, mm. It's a learning curve for me, but I just didn't have the success with the Johnson Sioux as I thought I would. I'd say one thing is, if you were to do this all again, what would be the one thing you wouldn't repeat? It's going to be it's a loaded question, I know, but if you can answer it, it would be great. Um, one of the mistakes I made earlier on, I, I, I dropped nitrogen too fast and I did have a yield penalty, so I wouldn't make that mistake again. I was trying to run before I could walk. Um, and the knowledge I've got now, I probably wouldn't go down the strip till route because I, I can do it without. But again, that's, that's only on land I know. I'm not saying it's wrong because in certain instances, the strip till will be very good and very useful. So, but for me, I could have made, you know, I've taken some land on recently and I, you know, I've just gone straight into no till with cover crops because I understand far more what I'm doing now. So, um, but it was all a learning curve for me, and it was probably essential for me with what between my two ears to go down that learning curve. I couldn't have done what I'm doing now, sort of 10 years ago. It's, it's been a, a, a joyride, I suppose, of a, a roller coaster ride of ups and downs. Yeah. It never always goes to plan. And uh, it's just keeping focused of where you're going to go and talk to people. But whatever problem you've had, and I can guarantee somebody else has had the problem. And that's why it's important just to talk to people. Thanks again to Tim Parton. I'll be posting links where you can contact him directly and see some of his work on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons for free. Quickly, before we wrap this up, remember that you can now contact us at Climate Farmers directly to be matched with an expert in regenerative agriculture in order to assist you in your journey towards regenerative management of your land and farm business. Just click the link on the show notes for this episode on the website and you'll be connected with one of our representatives who will help you evaluate your unique needs and your context in order to match you with a professional who will help you break through to the next level. You can also learn more about our work and our growing list of services for farmers in Europe at climatefarmers.org. And if you like this new thread focused on regenerative farming and the consultants who assist in the transition process, you can drop me a line directly at oliver at climatefarmers.org to send your feedback and to make recommendations of people and topics that you'd like to hear more about. And so that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And Climate Farmers and I will be right by your side along the way. Music